0: Hey Jeff. Hey Will. Hey Tim. What's up, Tim. For the podcast today, we watched the nuclear submarine movie *Crimson Tide*. You know, I always wanted to watch a movie where *Crimson Tide*'s USS Alabama went toe to toe with the Red October to see who would win. Ah, you know what? I bet the disappointing answer would be is that it would be a draw because both captains would be dealing with mutinies and probably feuding about how many pings to send each other. Tim, Sam, you're being super... For being super critical, man. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of the Supercritical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and oftentimes nonsensical way pop culture portrays nuclear weapons. My name is Tim Westmeyer, someone who studies nuclear weapons and works on nuclear nonproliferation for a living. And I am excited to be joined today in the virtual podcast studio by not one but two awesome returning guests. First up, Jeff Wilson, political director at the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation at Nuclear Wilson on Twitter. You'll remember Jeff from our previous episodes, uh, things like Starship Troopers, Chernobyl, and I think all of the Godzilla movies. Uh, Jeff, welcome back.
1: One ping only, baby. Just one ping only, please.
0: <laughs> all right. Uh, we are also here um, because they usually are found in pairs. We are welcoming <laughs> back Will Satren, at Will Satren on Twitter, Policy Advisor for the Norwegian Ministry of Defense. Will's been on so many episodes uh, that it's not worth recounting them all here on the podcast. He's been fun on here. Uh, but most recently, we were discussing the movie Heroes of Telmark. Welcome back, Will. Stuck to be here, Tim. So it's great to assemble this team back together again, because we're going to hear to talk about a nuclear weapons delivery system that seems to be back in the news headlines uh, recently, nuclear submarines. We're going to talk about the 1995 movie Crimson Tide. And as the movie poster tells us, this movie is about, quote, The nuclear submarine USS Alabama, where one man has absolute power and one man will do anything to stop him. A young first officer, Denzel Washington, stages a mutiny to prevent his trigger-happy Captain Gene Hackman from launching his nuclear missiles before confirming the orders to do so. Pretty crazy situation, but, uh, you know, this movie's fun. But let's uh, first get into why nuke submarines are back in the headlines. Jeff, why are we talking about this... uh, from the newspaper standpoint
1: this is something that has flummoxed a lot of people recently is the difference between nuclear submarines <laughs> right is it nuclear powered submarines or nuclear armed submarines they're not because the same they're not the same but, but the united states has just entered into a contract that we stole from our good buddies france uh to build australia a new series of nuclear powered submarines to help uh help safeguard the Pacific against the Chinese. And this this made a huge kerfuffle recently. Uh, and however, uh, I will say, those submarines are different than these ones are. They're, these are nuclear-armed <laughs> submarines. Those are nuclear-powered submarines. So it's talking about two couple of different things.
0: Yeah, well, the French, I think, aren't upset that they would potentially give nuclear weapons to the Australians. It's more like... They lost out on $66 billion worth of contracts. So I think everybody's upset here. The French, the Chinese, um, I think every, everyone's upset except for uh, U.S. defense contractors who get to now bid on that. But uh, I think actually more importantly, we're here to talk about uh, nuclear submarines because Jeff recently moved away from the D.C. area and now lives on the West Coast in the state of Washington, which is home to one of the two U.S. naval bases. Where our, our nuclear-launching, missile-launching um, submarines are, are stationed out there. So this was directed by the late Tony Scott, who directed movies like Top Gun, Days of Thunder, uh, one of my favorites, uh, Beverly Hills Cop 2. And he also collaborated with Denzel and a couple other movies like Man on Fire, which is excellent, and Unstoppable. Hans Zimmer helped with the score, and funny enough, Gwen Tarantino came in to help punch up some of the dialogue, which is kind of interesting.
1: This is clearly when Tony Scott was going through his Navy phase. Oh, oh,
0: yeah. Well, apparently, uh, we'll get into this, but Top Gun movie, obviously, the Navy loved it. it made everybody, including me as a kid, wanting to join uh, and, and fly some Tomcats. But this movie, a lot less so because of the content of the movie. They didn't help him out so much. Uh, but, Will, who's in this film?
2: Oh, man,
0: all all the people.
2: Uh, so, obviously, Gene Hackman, Denzel Washington, Viggo Mortensen is in it. Everybody's favorite, Aragorn uh, from Lord of the Rings. James Gandolfini was in it. Uh, Tony Soprano. I was I was like, did not remember that one. Um, and there were other a, a couple other uh, familiar faces uh, that uh, that had pretty substantial roles there as well. And that is another thing that I really liked about this movie. You know, we, we were talking for the podcast about comparison between this and Hunt for Red October and other movies like even like there were very few actors that had, like, you know, one-line roles. They were all pretty substantive, and I feel like everybody worked together to pull this uh, pull this movie
1: together. This is the first time I'd seen this movie since I was a child, essentially. Uh, but I have a series of notes that are just at Vigo question mark exclamation point James Gandolfini exclamation point and then Steve Zahn like you know like it was just like more and more people I was like, like everyone's in there
0: yeah it's a lot of fun uh, and a lot of people too that have played in former Nuke movies Denzel Washington's uh, in a film called Eli which takes place in a, a post-apocalypse uh, situation Gene Hackman uh, as Will knows um, sorry about that is in Superman four the quest for peace because uh, Will was a guest on that episode. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, Evan Vigo uh, in The the Great uh, Story, The Road, which is a a Cormac McCarthy book, not really a nuke movie, but people associate it with it, given the the, kind of the landscape. That's a book I read every year. I don't know why. Um, I don't know if James Gandolfini's been in any nuke movies that I've figured out, but there is a cameo at the end by Jason Robards, plays a couple of nuke movies, like The Day After is one of his kind of main roles that he's known for, as well as A Boy and His Dog. Yeah, so uh a lot of a lot of great people in this movie, a lot of new uh experience behind it and it did pretty well in the box office too. According to Box Office Mojo, made 174 million on about a 53 million dollar budget and Rotten Tomatoes uh critics like it. Uh 88% rating. So as we dive into this, uh I think there are two questions that we can think about as we go through. One, how accurate is the launch protocol situation uh, that they just portray in the movie You know, when it comes to nuclear missile submarines? And it's a little different than it is with, with nu- nuclear silos or a, a, a heavy bomber. It's a little bit different. kind of starts the same, but then ends differently. So I think it's worth going into how, how get close they get it because it's a key plot point. And also, you know, a pretty important thing when we think about nuclear deterrence and how, how easy it is or hard it is to get into a nuclear war. Uh, and finally kind of what role do nuclear missile launching submarines these ssbn's what do they play the role in war fighting and deterrence strategies because again a different way of handling this as part of the triad of missiles submarines and bombers so before we again dive in to this nuclear submarine movie as usual spoiler warning if you haven't seen this movie it's currently um, on amazon prime streaming so you have no excuse unless you're not an Amazon person, which is also a pretty good excuse.
2: Or if you uh, live abroad. Oh, um, yeah. I I went to Amazon Prime, which I I have my account here abroad, but it detected that I was abroad even
0: though I had a VPN on and I had to rent it. It was not included in my Prime subscription. Well, I'll Venmo you that. Appreciate it, dude.
3: (laughs) As you no doubt heard, my exo has penicillitis. Your name was at the top of the list. That's good to know, sir was shortlist. There's trouble in Russia. So they called us. And we're going over there and bringing the most lethal killing machine ever devised. The last time we hit this state of emergency was 32 and a half years ago during the Cuban Missile Crisis. So this is what it's all about, gentlemen. It's what we train for. Submerge the ship. Diving officers, submerge the ship. Make a depth 150 feet. On the 1MC, dive, dive. This year, we have a properly formatted emergency action message from National Command Authority. What we've always known Bravo, Echo, Echo, Charlie, Alpha becomes what we've always feared. Telling this to the captain, Russian rebels have threatened to launch against our country and are fueling right now. This is not a drill. Now. Sir, we have a possibly submerged submarine. You find out who that is. Receiving emergency
2: action message. Recommend. Alert 1.
3: The battle for survival begins. That's a message fragment. So we don't know what this message means. Our target package could have changed. I've made a decision. There's no place for fear. He's lost his nerve. I'd rather go out myself and get this one wrong. There's no room for mistakes. If we launch and we're wrong, what's left of Russia is going to launch at us. I'm captain of this boat. I don't have to think this over. There's no time for doubt. The missile system's ready to launch at in six minutes. You repeat this order, or I'll find somebody who will. hell no, you won't, sir. And nothing can stop the tide. Come on, our torpedoes in the water! Right One thousand yards closing dive. Make you depth twelve hundred feet. Hey, everybody! We cannot launch our missiles unless both you and I agree. Fire! They're feeling their missiles! It's right on top of us! Okay. Window, under arrest, on charge of mutiny! Oh! Captain Ramsey's in his state room. Fire one, now! Give me the missile key, Mr. Hunter. Sir, we are going down. I'm the commander of this ship! Crimson Tide. God help you if you're wrong. If I'm wrong, then we're at war. God help us all.
0: All right, so we get some opening text here. The three most powerful men in the world, the movie tells us at the beginning. The President of the United States the president of the Russian Republic, and the captain of a U.S. nuclear missile submarine. Uh, really starts us off pretty strong here. How do you guys feel about that statement?
1: I think it's spot on. I think that what's important for people to understand right at the outset here is exactly what we're talking about. Each of these Ohio ballistic missile submarines have 20 launch tubes. So they have 20 missile silos in them, essentially. Each one of these missiles is MERVED, meaning that it's fitted with multiple warheads, and they can carry up to eight Warheads. I, I've talked to Hans Christensen about this before, and they typically carry four to five. Mm-hmm. And, and principally, what we're talking about here is two different warheads one is 100 kilotons, and one, hundred, one is 455 kilotons. So that's one boat, 20 missiles, five warheads. Each boat is carrying about 100 nuclear weapons. And uh, I think that it rounds out to something like a couple thousand Hiroshima's, depending upon what the actual armament is. I mean, this is a significant significant amount of nuclear devastation in one in one submarine
0: i think they have the majority uh the especially these days of you know the warheads that are deployed actively are on submarines you know they're more than the missiles and the bombers uh i believe put together
1: yeah i think it's it's something like 900 warheads are deployed on them or something like that
0: yeah and um and you mentioned you know how they only have about four to five actually per missile per tube I think that's because of treaty limits. But they could, if if we got out of the treaty, we could have, I think, like 8, 10, 14, depends on, I think, the the warhead size.
1: Yeah, so the the D5 can hold up to 10 uh, individual warheads. And the other part of it is weight, right? Mm -hmm. Is where is the target, how much weight is on top of the missile for its ballistic trajectory. But yeah, like you said, a lot of it has to do, because we count each warhead on these things uh, and launchers for new start. So it's all about what is the treaty compliance for the amount that they can carry but they can carry a lot
0: yeah well speaking of weight um uh, our characters and our, the world is is got a heavy burden on it in the movie you know i think this is a kind of a mid-1990s film it's post soviet union collapsing it's so it's russia that's not openly hostile at the top leadership level to the united states but it's still kind of trying to find its footing we get a briefing from cnn it's aboard a of french aircraft carrier i thought for some reason i was like wow french aircraft carrier story Nukes, submarines. French upset at U.S. submarine. As I guess, like, a weird serendipity. Uh, we are. We getting uh, some reports that Russia is having some internal conflicts, almost to the point of a civil war. We have Russia striking against some groups in Chechnya that causes a big violent uprising in Russia. And there's this ultra nationalist, radical Russian leader Vladimir Radchenko, who kind of comes out of out of nowhere, seizes control. ...over a nuclear missile base in Russia, which they say is near the North Korean and Chinese border. They call it Artum, which I don't think is a real place. I, I tried looking for it. It is the name of a character in the the Metro 2033 video game series and book series. I don't know if that's what it's, got, it's drawing on, but that's certainly what I think of when I think of Artum. But in, anyways, uh, now this individual has access to 25 uh, nuclear you know, armed missiles, and, which each of those has about 10 warheads apiece... And he also has got a bunch of attack submarines, like four of these Akula class attack submarines that are quiet, maybe nuclear powered, but they're not nuclear missile, you know, launching submarines. He gets these missiles, he gets these submarines and he says, leave me alone. The Russian government and the U.S., you know, don't bother me. I'm here to take over the, the, this country. Uh, Will, what do you think of this situation? Is this a good situation to be in?
2: Oh, it's a terrible situation to be in. And uh, it's it's very like this this part of the movie and really like, I think the entire movie it's, it's uh, inspired by real events. This is, you know, early Russian Federation after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, In real life, in 1993, there was uh, a precursor. We almost thought we had a civil war on our hands in Russia. So basically, Boris Yeltsin, who was the Russian president at the time, tried to dissolve Parliament. He did not have the constitutional power to do so. He argued that there had been a referendum that gave him the power to do so. Parliament said no. There was a standoff, and Yeltsin resolved that standoff by sending in the, the army they sent in tanks and they shelled the Russian White House, which is like their parliament building. So imagine Donald Trump sending tanks to shell Congress because they're counting up votes fraudulent <laughs> for the election, right? Like, doesn't seem so far fetched anymore. But like, basically, that's what happened in Russia in, in 1993. And and people were seriously concerned that there was gonna there was going to be a civil war. So I, I think that Part Uh, some of the footage that they used here in this uh, fictive CNN segment on the French aircraft carrier is from that. Some of the actual footage from from that siege that happened. So. uh that was particularly striking to me. Also at the time, Russia had some uh, far-right politicians who were gaining serious traction. A guy named Gennady Zygomov, who is still in the Russian Duma today, by the way. Um, He he was the representative of the Communist Party, was very anti-American, very outspoken. And in 1996, so the way that the Russian electoral system works is, if no presidential candidate gets 50% of the vote, it goes to a second round of voting, so neither he nor Boris Yeltsin got that or any of the other candidates, so it was the second round. People thought he was going to win the second round of voting, and Yeltsin pulled out all the stops uh got some very suspicious help from oligarchs and in part the United States as well, and ended up winning the election. I think that politician was the inspiration
0: uh for uh for Rajesh. and that that actor that plays that politician is great. He's the same guy who, if you ever watched the movie Super Troopers, he plays the bad guy cop. And I think he's also what else is he in? Uh, oh, he also plays Mr. Kruger, uh, who is uh, George Costanza's one of George Costanza's many bosses uh, in on Seinfeld. Yeah. Great actor and plays a pretty pretty good Russian villain Uh, in this one i
1: think it's sort of interesting just to add on to what Will's saying here is that this idea of sort of nuclear secession Mm -hmm. it's really happened right like after the breakup of the soviet union like ukraine is left with a bunch of nuclear weapons that need to be repatriated back to russia like this isn't entirely a fictional event countries have fallen and their nuclear weapons have been sort of left out you know Mm -hmm. there's a question about sort of in rebellions or uprisings could nuclear weapons be loose? And, and since we're talking about the state of Washington here anyways, where the Pacific boomer fleet is, I always think it's interesting to say, should the state of Washington decide to secede from the Union tomorrow? It would be the third largest nuclear power in the world, right? Like this thing, like these things, they have happened. It is possible, and especially given sort of fractive po- political environments today, it's something that people should continue to think about.
0: And the the movie tells us, for at least now, we're okay because the Russian leaders they believe that Vladimir and his group. Uh, which I'll call the dissidents kind of throughout this movie um, discussion. But like they say that the dissidents do not have access to the, quote, nuclear codes, the, the launch codes, or the, I guess the Shiget, which is the Russian version of the nuclear football.
3: Let us begin the facts. We've been informed by the NSA that an entire rebel corps of the Russian army is involved. There seems to be massive defections. Vladimir appears to be winning the hearts and minds of the Russian soldiers. They've seized the region by the Chinese and North Korea borders. That includes a submarine base, from which they've surged four Kula-class attack subs. They've acquired a nuclear base at Artum that houses 25 hardened silos for Russian ICBMs, armed with up to 10 warheads apiece. Now, the Russian government has assured us that talks are underway. They claim that Ruchinko forces do not possess the launch codes. But if Ruchinko were to crack them, they could launch against our west coast direct or come in over the pole Take out Washington and New York. Commander-in-Chief has directed U.S. military forces to set DEFCON 4. We've been ordered to get underway at 0600 hours to assume alert coverage, mid-Pacific, the Far Eastern TBD target package.
0: Uh, But they say that they're going to crack the codes. They can figure it out. Uh, I'm not sure how they do that or what that means, but it's it's movie talk for there's a timeline. They're going to get access to the codes, and then they say very explicitly in the movie, once they get that, they're going to be able to fire at either Washington, D.C. or New York. Uh, I mean, or any country, or any place in the world, because these things can go anywhere. Uh, but anyways, they'll they and hit D.C. in uh, in New York. Pretty scary situation here. What What's the U.S. do in response? Well, it deploys some troops. It deploys some submarines. It deploys assets kind of into the region. And there's multiple points in the movie where they reference... You know, this is the most troops, the the most severe situation, all of this stuff since the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, And remember that because we'll talk later in the nuclear discussion about why there was a situation with the nuclear submarine in the Cuban Missile Crisis, where we'll actually be able to kind of draw on that, and the movie does as well to kind of describe, you know, what's happening here with these new forces deployed into the region. They've got a mission, which we'll talk about in just a second here, but first they need a crew. They got a pool of crew together. So Lieutenant Commander Hunter, who plays by Denzel Washington, and Lieutenant Peter Ince, played by Vigo, Vigo Morrison, they're uh, they're called into action. Uh, they're at a birthday party, but they get a phone call. Uh, While well, watching all the crazy stuff on the news, and they're asked to bring on bring their skills to a new submarine, the USS Alabama, which is commanded by F- Captain Frank Ramsey, played by Gene Hackman. It, it seems like it's you know it's they're all kind of new to each other a little bit. I mean, Vigo knows Denzel. Vigo also, I think, at one point worked with for, she, for Gene Hackman on a sub, so that someone they know each other. But it's for for Denzel and, and Gene Hackman, it's kind of a new relationship. So he first has to pass a, a job test basically like an interview. And he does because he laughs at Captain Ramsey's really inappropriate, 2021 inappropriate dirty jokes about horses and women. But I think more importantly, the captain's Jack Russell Terrier, who's allowed on the submarine, by the way, likes him. So I think that's kind of a key test.
1: The most important character in the whole film is Jack Russell Terrier, though. I'm 100% sure.
0: <laughs>
1: and and it has foreshadowing because the dog gets up on his lap and he's like, he likes you. They're the smartest animals in the world. That means that you're a good egg or something, basically. Mm-hmm. Like
0: I like it. The dog should have later on tested the authenticity of the messages. Yes! That would be awesome. A, I
1: have <laughs> a note later on that says, dogs can sense evil with exclamation points.
0: So. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ramsey gets to have this dog on the submarine because he's one of the few captains, they say, that's in that Navy that's actually seeing combat tours in places like Panama and elsewhere. Ramsey... He gets to do what he wants. And he in his opinion matters. And his opinion is is that this, you know, Vladimir guy is the real deal, that he thinks that if we don't, you know, go there and to the region and kind of show our force. And if he thinks we're pushovers, if we don't do you know, all that stuff, then he's willing to launch these weapons once he gets the codes. So the US goes under DEF CON five. The, the mission for the US is Alabama, you know, get to the region. If Vladimir, and this is the key thing here, they keep talking about, if he fuels the missiles, if he gets the codes and he fuels his missiles, then the U.S. will preemptively launch nuclear weapons out of the USS Alabama in the region and destroy those silos. Uh, they obviously don't want to do it now because that would piss off the Russians and a bunch of other people. They don't want to preemptively use these nuclear weapons. But once this looks like it's a situation where they need to do this, then they're going to go ahead and do it. So... Ramsey makes this big speech about why nuclear submarines are the frontline defense of the United States, and he demands absolute deference to him once you step foot on his boat. The, the big fun scene after the end of all this speech, they decide to chant "Go Bama, Roll Tide, roll,
1: roll Tide, Roll
0: Tide." I heard everybody basically cheers this except for one guy. I think I saw in the background who quietly whispered "War Eagle" uh, from somewhere <laughs> else uh, in Alabama.
3: There's trouble in Russia. So they called us, and we're going over there and bringing the most lethal killing machine ever devised. We constitute the front line and the last line of defense. I expect and demand your very best. Anything less, you should have joined the Air Force. (laughs) This might be our Commander-in-Chief's Navy, but this is my vote. All I ask is that you keep up with me. And what do we, we say? Go, down. go down.
2: Pretty funny. I just, I just want to interject here, though. Like, it's it's interesting. Like, the you know major premises of the movie is that, like, they are sending this SSBN to the region as a show of strength, right? Like, a, 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 yeah, d- deterrence. To, to deter the adversary, that is absolutely not what you do in real life. Like you send an aircraft carrier, you're sending a conventional message of strength, or if you're sending a nuclear message of strength, you know, you, you send B-52 bombers, like you deploy B-52 bombers to the region, yeah. ssbn's the whole point is that they're under you know they're they're far below the surface and they're silky. they're invisible you, and
1: they're already there. out there right like they're exactly. already they're, they're
0: already out there they're invisible. yeah
1: nobody goes like hey we got a crisis go send another sub out like yeah
0: who had the bright idea in this movie to like put a patrol of a nuclear missile launching submarine near russia who would have thought that that would be something that you'd ever want to do I mean, <laughs> it's very silly there's a couple things that are like that but if you just if you knew about the plot uh, because of your of your nuclear knowledge and you combine those together you're like wait that doesn't make any sense that's definitely that's definitely one of them
1: take a step back real quick i, I think that actually the most interesting and important part of this film is, is sort of a throwaway line that that you briefly hinted at right there like mm. Where he says the Navy puts up with Gene Hackman's eccentricities because he's like the last subboat captain to have like. combat experience or something this like absolutely is true this reminds me of Hyman rickover like crazy mm.
0: like he's quoted all over this movie yeah they mentioned him a couple times uh, yeah
1: yeah like Hyman rickover like the father of the nuclear navy had like this stranglehold on who became subboat captains in in nuclear submarines in the u.s navy the navy ended up hating him like did not want him to be the admiral in charge of the like silent service anymore and they tried to like say listen you're too old like you're getting up in your 60s now it's past your mandatory retirement date. Rick over got a a commutation of his sentence basically from Congress every year (laughs) saying that, that he needed to continue to be the admiral in charge of subs. Some commanders are eccentric thing in the Navy is a hundred percent accurate. Rickover used to ask the Rickover question to every person that was going to be involved in, in potentially being a captain in the nuclear Navy. And he would walk in and he did things like saw off the fronts of the of the chairs so that they would feel uncomfortable already. <laughs> like, you know, or. Like they he'd have all candidates wait in a broom closet or something for an hour before meeting with him. And then he would be like, I want you to prove to me the existence of Santa Claus. And that was it. And you had to think on your feet for like two minutes or whatever, to come up with a way to prove the existence to Santa Claus with him and whether or not you could do it was what <laughs> made you a captain in the nuclear Navy or not.
0: I like that interview much more than um, trying to laugh at dirty uh, jokes about horses. I think that's a, a much better technique <laughs> So let's, let's talk really briefly here about submarines and submarines that launch, you know, nuclear weapons, because I, I want to talk briefly about what they are and um, kind of what what they can do and where they're located. And then uh, Will and Jeff can kind of jump in about kind of what role they serve in the nuclear deterrence. It's important to know this. You know, I think people who listen to our podcast, like we can talk about the point by point beats of the plot, but like they listen to this kind of stuff because that's what they want to know these days uh we have uh, as jeff talked about earlier what's called the ohio class uh, ssbn you know nuclear missile launching submarines we have 14 of them uh and about 52 or so uh nuclear powered attack submarines and these are the ones that not the exact kind but the kind that the united states is going to be working on selling uh to australia and these are the ones that are nuclear powered in terms of the reactor and they run really quiet because they're not as you know loud as a, a diesel powered a propulsion system but we've got 14 of these missile launching ones. And usually two or any given point are dry docked with repair and retrofits. They do this about once or twice uh, in the life cycle. And these life cycles for these submarines are really long. They're decades long. And then about 8 to 10 or so are deployed these days on what are called deterrence patrols, where they they go quiet, they're by themselves more or less most of the time, They, they run deep, they get their messages every once in a while, but they don't surface until they're more or less done with their deterrence patrol. And these patrols can last quite a long time. They're either on the east coast or the west coast Of the U.S., they're either at, like I mentioned, near Bangor, Washington, at Naval Base uh, Kitsap, or they're at Kings Bay, Georgia, at kind of the two different locations. You can imagine why on either coast. Well, U.S. is benefiting by the fact that it has two different oceans on either side, and those are different places where you'd want to have a nuclear weapon launching submarines. Each of these Ohio-class subs uh, has around twenty-four tubes four missiles for Trident 2, but uh, in each one, as Jeff mentioned earlier, usually can carry around eight of those warheads per missile, uh, but most of the time they're around four due to treaty limits. And... We're in an interesting period with the history of the nuclear missile submarines because we're in the middle of a very, very expensive, long process of replacing all of these for the new generation of Columbia-class uh, nuclear submarines. There's going to be about 12 of these uh, planned, with the first coming online sometime in 2028. Very long lead time when you make a decision about a nuclear submarine uh, in order how long it takes to plan it, design it, build it, and actually get it ready to go. And once they're in service to plan, life is about 42 years of service. So these are decisions that they make and they're going to be you know, decades from now before they're offline. And these, interesting enough, will be not have as many tubes for missiles. Uh, There's reasons for it, but it's kind of interesting that they go from 24 to 16 and, but still likely MIRB. The USS Alabama, that's the one they show in the movie, it is a real Ohio class nuclear sub. They didn't create a name. This one entered into service in 84 and and is still active today. And if you are looking and you're watching the movie, there is a shot of the actual submarine. It's when in the movie, they dive into the ocean, um, Tony Scott was in a helicopter, and they were just filming, looking for stuff, and they were told, stop filming this nuclear submarine, it's about to go on patrol, but sure enough, it, it went down uh, into the ocean, which is exactly the shot that Tony Scott wanted anyways, and if you've seen the movie On the Beach, not the original version with Gregory Peck, but the uh, remake TV version from 2000 with, uh, I think, Ahmad Assad and some other people, uh, they reuse footage of uh, Crimson Tide for that movie, and that's what the USS Alabama is there. So these are what the subs do, but what role do they serve in the deterrent plan uh, versus say a missile uh, silo or um, a bomber and let Will or Jeff, whatever you feel like you wanna jump into this.
2: And I actually just gave a webinar a couple weeks ago uh, Mm -hmm. on nuclear nuclear attack submarines versus Ohio class submarines because actually nuclear submarines have been a lot of the news here in Norway as well. Not uh, because of the uh, Australia submarine deal. Because of Russia, the United States has been sending uh, Virginia class attack subs to Norwegian ports. And Norwegians are getting nervous about that. And uh, basically, there is uh, a lot of misunderstanding in the general populace, as there is in the United States, that these nuclear submarines are nuclear armed, which they are not, right? They're not, the United States is not sending nuclear weapons to Norway. Submersive ship ballistic nuclear. Right, that is the nuclear attack nuclear missile submarine. They serve a unique role in the deterrence posture of the United States of America. Bombers are very visible, you know, they take up from airfields, you can see it on satellite imagery. It sends a signal when you deploy them to a region. We do this a lot with North Korea when they are doing something that we don't like, like testing missiles or conducting military exercises. We fly B 52s to Guam or, you know, somewhere somewhere else in the region where it's very visible. That sends a message that, Hey, we're watching you. We can, we can nuke you if we want. The silos kind of serve that purpose every day. They're, they're just there, right? They're there. They're visible. Heaven forbid if they go on high alert, the silo doors are opened and satellite imagery can pick that up. As I hinted at, you know, these, these submarines are out in the ocean on deterrence patrols 24/7. It's not like we send them out. Like the United States sends them out when there's a crisis. They're always there. They're always watching and they're always ready to fire. Now, if there is a crisis, one of the submarines, one of the boomers, as they are colloquially called, um, will be redirected. But no one will ever know that. Information about where they are is always top secret. Like um, Trump spilled the beans on the location once of a boomer when he was uh, meeting with Sergey Levrov in uh, in the Oval Office. And that was a huge Scandals like we don't do this ever. And the reason for that is submarines are just they are the backbone of our deterrence posture. They are the guarantee can take out our silos, you can take out our bombers, you can never take out our submarines that you don't know where are and you can't target. So you attack us, you will have Jeff. What do you say was just shy of a thousand warheads? Guaranteed, might not be today or tomorrow, but by next week, you will be gone, you will be wiped off the face of the planet that is what uh, the ohio class ballistic missile submarines do so yeah the the portrayal here in the movie it's it's um it makes for a great movie makes for a lot of drama and tension but they do kind of they get a ton of stuff right in this movie but that is one kind of fundamental strategy thing that they get
1: the ssbn's are the secure second strike right like it is the backbone of deterrence should anybody launch a nuke at the united states Like Will said, if they happen to somehow magically take out every single bomber base and every single ICBM in the Midwest, there are still submarines in the oceans that nobody can find. Um, You know, I think that we keep about five of these in range of their targets at all times. Uh, So like you said, we have 14 of them. I think there's eight in the Pacific theater and six in the Atlantic theater, but no matter like who's in refit or if some of them are coming off patrol or on patrol or still deployed, there are always five, That are ready to go at all times that are in range of their targets in Russia and China. So they get, they're always ready. And it's that threat, like Will says, that the United States believes ensures its deterrent. This is why other people won't launch nuclear weapons at us.
0: And it's the nice thing about them, too, is that they, if you are not 100% sure that maybe there's a, a missile that's incoming but oh you know what it's just one that's weird why would you send just one maybe there's an error like the number the dozens of errors that we've seen in the past you could as a president make a decision i'm gonna wait to see if this is actually a target that's gonna hit and if it does and it is a precursor to something else you do have the submarines available for you that is something that people consider as not always probably the number one option for people in terms of responding to things but it's it's also part of the idea why you have these submarines
1: But now, interestingly enough, Tim, you know, like right now, you you mentioned that we're making these decisions about the future of the nuclear Mm -hmm. arsenal. There are decisions being made in Congress right now that are going to affect the nuclear arsenal for the rest of our lifetime. And that includes these Columbia class submarines. And and I think it's interesting to note here, whether for political reasons or defense contract reasons or whatever, there is a lot of argument about whether this is a secure second strike anymore. Mm -hmm. I think Angus King last week, just said, well, there's a possibility that within the lifespan of the Columbia-class uh, submarine that um, somebody will come up with a way to find them, you know? Um, and they use that as sort of a strange reason for why we need to keep the silo missiles, which doesn't make any sense. But, but, but it is an interesting question. It's something that's being discussed right now, as is what sort of Will was alluding to. There's a decision potentially to put nuclear weapons back on just nuclear-powered submarines, the attack submarines, so there's a lot going on in this sphere right now.
0: It's always fascinating when you think about nuclear triad and the bombers are, you know, they, they serve a certain role and they, they cost a little bit somewhere in the middle between, you know, su- submarines are very, very expensive. You think that they serve all these roles, but if you want them, you, they, you have to pay for them. They're very, very expensive silos. Once you dig the hole and you put the missile together and you design a new missile, the cost is relatively low on a year-to-year basis. So it's a decision. What, where do you want to spend your money? Which do you think is the most secure? These debates have been going on forever. We used to have these things also on Surface Fleet, and we used to have them as artillery, boat-destroying mines. There were nuclear uh, weapon exploding.
1: Those artillery shells, everything.
0: So these are all debates that are going to be hopefully, hopefully at some point we'll stop, uh, at some point if, if Jeff and, and crew are able to succeed at their, at their mission. Um, but that's certainly something that we... We'll probably never stop debating this, and you know it, it's interesting that even this debate weaves its way into the movie as well. Because one of the scenes we see when we meet all of the crew and finally everyone's together, Denzel has, was accepted on board to replace the the XO that Ramsey previously had who was sick. Um, one one small thing about that is is that most of these crews have what are called a uh, gold and I think it's gold and blue teams. Um, I think that's the color designations, and for most of these patrols, there there are two different separate crews so that at any point these crews can be switched out when they're on patrols they can go port switch out the crews and come back so the idea like ramsey's you know xo is sick well okay you would just go to the next one that was already there. But anyways, fair enough. We we meet the crew. They're, they're cracking wise. They're playing poker. They're kind of hazing some of the younger sailors. They're talking about submarine movies like we do. Very relatable stuff. But then over like dinner, there's like this discussion debate about whether or not um we should, one of the crew members says, we should just nuke Vladimir in Russia now. Why not? This is just as legitimate as bombing uh, with atomic weapons, uh, Japan, uh, Hunter Denzel Washington kind of hedges on whether or not he thought this would be appropriate. You know, captain Ramsey of course is like, I would do it. I would do it again. I would do it a third time. You know, he says, I'm simple. I don't overthink things. You give me an order. I'm going to launch the missiles. I don't need to know why an order is coming through. I just need to know where, when, and how many missiles and, and, and Denzel's like, I don't know. I mean, I think the Navy would want us to think about why the order was given and they keep going back and forth on this they discuss what's the purpose of war and all of this stuff and it's really a fascinating deep debate kind of really real the first third of the movie but it really defines i think the characters well and their motivations
2: what don't you understand Rachenko is a fanatic okay he's a potential hitler somebody cool. should just step up and shoot him he's a dangerous lunatic and
3: he's threatening nuclear war and he means it what's that make us since we're the only nation ever dropped a nuclear bomb on anyone it makes us a prime target I mean, there's half a dozen other third world countries with atom bombs would love to drop one on us. That's right. That's why we should drop one on them. What are you, a communist? You have a problem with us dropping (laughs) nuclear bombs in Japan? Shut up, Doc. You think it was a mistake, Mr. Hunter? Sir? Using the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Well, if I thought that, sir, I wouldn't be here. (laughs) Interesting way you put that. Very carefully. Somebody asked me if we should have bombed Japan a simple yes. By all means, sir. I don't mean to suggest that you're indecisive, Mr. Hunter. Rickover gave me my command a checklist, a target, and a button to push. All I had to know is how to push it. They'd tell me when. They seem to want you to know why. I would hope they'd want us all to know why, sir. War is a continuation of politics by other means. On Klauswitz, I think, uh, sir, that what he was actually trying to say was a little more complicated. Yes, the purpose of war is is to serve a political end, but the true nature of war is to serve itself. (laughs) I'm very impressed. I just think that in the nuclear world, true enemy can't be destroyed. In the nuclear world, the true enemy is war itself.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's interesting. You know, Denzel Washington's character is basically accused of being a ring knocker. You know, like they make they make kicks about it later. Like you went to Annapolis and Harvard. Oh, God. He says something that I think is 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 very powerful. He says in in the nuclear uh, world, the true enemy cannot be destroyed. Uh, The true enemy is war itself. And this this whole conversation that, that you're talking about about the uh, the one commander just says, just tell me how many and where they are, you know, like that kind of thing. This reminds me of Harold Herring, who's a launch officer for the Air Force in a silo in in the silo realm of nuclear weapons, who in the 70s basically asked a question in a training drill, well, how can I know that an order that I receive is a legitimate one? Or how can I even know that it's coming from a sane president, right? The Air Force basically drummed him out of the service. We assume that orders are valid. Like the orders that are in the president's nuclear football are all pre-vetted as being legal orders. And I'm using air quotes here. Mm -hmm. So If the president decides that he wants to nuke Iran or Russia or whatever, using any of those, there's no question about the legality of it. But there is still a question, is the man at the top or is the person giving the order, is he in a right state of mind? But we assume that the process has already weeded those people out. So when it actually gets down to the <laughs> mechanics of how you launch nuclear weapons, it's it, even though there's a human chain of responsibility, it's just supposed to go off. There's no stopping to question whether or not an order is valid or not. It's, or it's assumed that it is, you know, and, and, and that's a fascinating thing. That happens in in a microcosm in this movie, but is one that we've and I know we're going to talk about later. But is one that has just happened very recently. Is the president in a state, you know, that where he can make an order like that? But I think it's interesting that it's dealt with here in, in a smaller scale. Is the captain in in his right mind when he decides to launch and make an order to launch?
2: Will uh, just going back to the beginning of Jeff, Jeff started talking about right? this idea that like with when it comes to nuclear weapons, like the only enemy is the war itself, right? Like, and this is the idea that if there are no winners in nuclear war, there are only losers. And then going back to the point that the sailor made in the movie is like, oh, well, what's the difference between just you know, nuke and Ratchenko like right now and what we did to the Japanese? The difference is what happened with Hiroshima and Nagasaki, it was a nuclear war. They didn't have nuclear weapons to fight back with. It was a nuclear massacre. So we didn't have that, right? Like there was no, like the enemy is the war itself. That can't happen. That was just like, you know, okay, we're going to kill a couple hundred thousand people, call it a day. Um, Once the Soviet Union developed nuclear weapons, the world changed forever, right? Like now you had two nuclear armed states going at it now we have nine you know like the the dynamics are just completely different from what they were uh back in 1945 and it's you know it's a pandora's box we're we're never going to be able to put the lid back on that dynamic until we get rid of nuclear weapons period
1: totally and it's something that gets brought up again later that we'll talk about later but this idea of nuclear war fighting Mm -hmm. versus nuclear and they actually call it nuclear holocaust there's a very difference of opinion, you know, and, a, and, a, and it's something I'm really looking forward to talking about.
0: Well, before we were able to do any of those debates, uh, we, we see in the movie there's kind of all of a sudden a big, massive fire in the cooking galley. While Hunter's in there trying to put out the fire and, and save some of the crew members, Captain Ramsey decides, you know what? This is the best time to run a nuclear missile launch system readiness drill. They run into high alert and, and us as, as viewers get to see the process of how they would go about this if it was real. They get one of these emergency action messages, the EAMs. Uh, there's a big you know light that says EAM incoming message and they get a printout like a fax machine uh, and they get their order. And it's very clear you're supposed to do this. And they, they mention over the radio this is a uh, a drill, you know, but we still want to get through and run through the process. You see, Hunter, he he runs uh, into into action, removes his firefighting suit, and is there to authenticate the message, um, that it's legitimate according to him. They open up a safe, they bring out this little plastic biscuit. I actually think in submarines it's called a cookie. Um, they they crack it open. They check it against the message that they just received, and it's it says that it's legitimate. They go to launch depth and everything. But while this is happening, of course, one of the crew members is is actually dying from the fire situation. So the drill is canceled, and then there's this big debate that between Hunter and Ramsey whether or not it was a good time to run this drill. Uh, Hunter thinks it was a bad idea. Ramsey's like nope you know in the middle of a war sometimes you are in these chaotic situations and we're still get the order to launch it's more important that we do what we need to do it's it's fascinating you really you see what's going to happen here in the rest of this movie because Ramsey says look I don't want a a, a kiss ass I don't want you to I want you to express your doubts to me if you have concerns but don't do it in public you know, do it in private, and if you can't get into a private place, then, you know, shut up and do your action. Because he has this great quote where he says,
3: Those sailors out there are just boys. Boys who are trained to do a terrible and unthinkable thing. If that ever occurs, the only reassurance they'll have that they're doing the proper thing is gonna derive from their unqualified belief in the unified chain of command. It means, in a missile drill, they hear your voice right after mine without hesitation. We're here to preserve democracy, not to practice it.
0: They do a pretty good job of, of describing um, and portraying EAMs, the Emergency Accent Messages. Um, these things kind of were part of our nuclear command and control system since 1981. Uh, they're Their ID codes that, that are created, they, they go out from either command or they can be launched by the Airborne Command Post, um, which is kind of a backup to strategic Command, but they're sent out through a variety of different um, ways. You know, sometimes it's radio, sometimes it's low frequency, and then it's cables, a couple different ways so that there's lots of backups, uh, but submarines would get those things and then, you know, follow their order.
2: I want to go on the record in saying that I'm 110% on board with Ramsey's take on this. Like, mm-hmm. this is the absolute opportune time to do a drill. There is nothing more stressful than having to make the decision on whether or not to end the world, right? Launch nuclear weapons. So yeah, like fires on submarines are probably the the most serious thing that can possibly happen. Everybody's like, Tensions are running high. You can't recreate that scenario. So, yeah, like that call, I was 110% on board with. Jeff, what do you think? I,
1: I think that this scene perfectly encapsulates the three nuclear themes in this movie, which is first, are orders valid, right? Like, is the person making them doing it right? And they even set up the two man system that mm-hmm. the Navy has in place, right? Uh, second, there's confusion in the time of war. And sometimes orders can be misinterpreted or they could be misunderstood or they may not be valid. So there needs to be a check about whether or not that's right. And third is this idea of the cost of war is that Denzel makes a, a comment after this. He says, you know, we're talking about the lives of a billion people here, right? We have to be sure that this is right. And so, I mean, those those sort of self-reinforcing things asking this handful of officers to make a decision about the uh, fate of the world, like Will says, in in one of the most stressful environments possible, already thrown. The fact that somebody may be shooting at you, or that there's a fire in the galley, you know, all of those things are even heightened even more. So, I mean, I think that that in a microcosm, again, the submarine is the perfect place to break down these three themes that are so critical about talking about the use of nuclear weapons.
0: And I think the the movie is some good screenwriting because even in the course of a drill. Someone dies. That is, you know, even in a drill, if that's what happens during a drill, let's see what happens when the real thing hits, which is right now in the movie on day six of their patrol. They get another EAM message. This appears not to be a drill. Uh, it says, National Military Command Center, Washington, D.C., orders USS Alabama to set Deathcon 3 and that Vladimir now has the launch codes of his 25 nuclear missiles. I guess the idea here is, if, if he now takes that next step, if, if Vladimir takes the next step of fueling the missiles now that he has the codes, you know, as seen by military satellites, um, we don't have to get into whether or not military satellites see in real time or any of those things. They they, they don't. Uh, spoiler alert. He'll be able to launch in one hour once, you know, starting to fuel the missiles. We're in a pretty tense situation here.
1: Absolutely. And, and I think it's worth saying this is a very I mean, whether or not Russian rebels are going to attack the United States and or Japan, which I thought was an interesting quote. I have no mm-hmm. idea what they would attack Japan for. You know instead L- of NATO. Vladimir
0: just got he had some bad sushi one day when he visited yeah. and his, his <laughs> yeah. Plane like God.
1: yeah but but I mean like this is a real potential scenario right and the and this phrase that you just said Tim which is I think people can sort of laugh off is totally accurate. There is uh there is room and guidance in the nuclear the US nuclear PSYOP for a preemptive nuclear strike, mm-hmm. right? If, if we think that someone is preparing to attack the United States with nuclear weapons and has credible intelligence saying so, we can nuke them first. That, that, that's the totally, the, even in the, the sort of current Joe Biden thinking of the, the national nuclear use parameters, that, that's a real thing. And I think this brings up an interesting conversation that, you know, po- policy conversation, is about this idea of no first use, you know, and why people want to bring it up, um, you know, which lends itself to this whole movie itself here later on.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it gets even more heightened when uh, six days later on the patrol, the crew hears one of those Akula-class attack subs, the Russian ones that the dissident group is now managing. Um, You know, we talked about that earlier, that we previewed it. Um, Chekhov's Akula-class has arrived and now... Um, the crew, well, while it's trying to hide from this attack submarine, um, receives another actually authenticated EAM that now it's time to launch. Um, they, they say that the Russian missiles are being fueled. They're going to launch in an hour. We're now at Deathcon 2, which is a, you know, really high, uh, state of alert, uh, you know, Cuban missile level style, uh, Cuban missile crisis level style of alert, um, one step away from active war, um. And they received the message, which says to launch 10 of their Trident missiles uh, with a, a target package. Uh, and they keep repeating the number here, SLBM 64741-2. So as you mentioned, Jeff, earlier, you know, that's one of the packages that they're told to do. It's a it's a target set. It's probably a target set that they, they worked on before they left. This is this missile field, most likely, and this is this this naval place. Uh, they're, you know, here's go ahead and, and do these launches Um you know, of these 10 missiles and they get their authentication code and the tubes are prepped uh, for launch. The captain goes to get his launch key from the stateroom. They mentioned very clearly that in 14 minutes, which is just about the time, 14-ish minutes, 15 minutes is usually how long it takes once you start this process. Uh, In order to be able to launch, they're going to be at the depth and and be ready to go but what happens next this is not you know a simple obviously the movie is not only 20 30 minutes long uh there's another complication uh, that gets thrown into this
1: it's a great scene leading up to this complication is exactly what will said is that like things are intense and yeah. confusing like they, they're rigged for torpedo warfare right like they think that they're going to get into a shooting fight with the kula with the russian and and they say you know if he so much as opens a tube or you know we're going to blast him out of the water. And then immediately they get that EAM signal and he goes, you know, secure from torpedo warfare. We're going to missile warfare. And they change. And even mm-hmm. though they're being targeted by a Russian submarine, they start like going to, to launch depth and stuff, you know, that, which I think is crazy. But, but then, but then what you're talking about happens and they get a, <laughs> a contravening order or maybe a contravening yeah. order.
0: So they they they, they try to, uh, you know, go and, and run through their, what their, their, their mission plan. Um, but because of this, the fact that the Akula class is here, they have to go quiet. Uh, So through a combination of things, they lose connection to the National Military Command Center. Before they do, a partial EAM comes through. This message is is confusing. Why would you send another EAM when you were given as an order to launch? So Hunter, Denzel Washington, thinks that they must be told to abort the launch. Um, Why else? Why would you send another confirmation? Like, is it, Is they're like, "You know what, never mind, let's put fifteen missiles on the target. The hunter's confused about what what's going on here, so he wants to get back up to the depth so they can receive the message again. But Ramsey's like, nope, um, uh, you know, we don't want to get the attention of the Akula class. maintain the launch process. We know we're proceeding this if we need to to launch through a series of kind of weird situations, malfunctions of of a variety of different equipment. Alabama gets on the radar of the Akula class. they get torpedoes, they get torpedoes fired against them.
2: On on the sonar Tim. Yeah, okay. sonar
0: ping. Several pings happen and they just barely miss uh the, the Alabama. But it's it's pretty crazy. They they there's a lot of there's a lot of debate between Ramsey and Hunter about what this Partial EAM message might say they're ready to launch in about four minutes, but Hunter says no. The message is probably about maybe to abort. We don't know. We think that, the, you know, there's this debate about while well, there are other submarines in the region, like we talked about earlier. Maybe they can receive, you know, maybe their radio is working. And if, if we hold maybe we'll be able to, you know, still launch later if it if it turns out to be the case, but at least these other subs in the region can can deal with it. Ramsey says, No, I need to assume that all those submarines are destroyed. There's lots right. of back and forth here, right, Jeff?
1: Well and there's this interesting thing because the the Navy regulations that they talk about, which are true, is like in the absence of a clear and countermanding mm-hmm. order, the orders that you have in hand stand, right? right. So he says, listen, I have an order to launch nuclear weapons. Otherwise, the United States is going to be new, right? Like that. that's, that's a, a real big, yeah, it's a big deal. What Denzel is arguing is like, well, maybe a contravening order has come through. We don't know. We have to figure that out. Sort of this weird, like, rules is written or rules as intended kind of thing you know like yep. because if if we if we start a nuclear war the denzel's point is like that's e- that's even worse like like and we don't know we need more information he, he's making this technical argument like listen like there's other subs that are in range uh you know too they can do our job if we can't and gene hackman says well that's that's disobeying our direct order you know people are counting on us and so it's this interesting like You're the college boy kind of understanding Mm, about theory versus me who knows the real deal here, you know, kind of thing.
0: It's hard to tell who's who's right. You know, you can talk about, well, no one's right because they all are debating about whether or not to, to kill people with nuclear weapons. But... From the process perspective, that is as it laid out, like they're that they that they received a partial message. The movie kind of fudges this a little bit later, which I'll talk about uh, later. You know about what the, the the part of the message that they do get, um, whether or not it, it would be enough of a hint. But they don't receive the full message, and they're pretty strict about that. There can't be typos in the message. It has to be very clear about what their, what their order was going to be.
1: They, these are these people's jobs, yeah. right? We can we, get in all the discussion we want about whether or not using nuclear weapons first is ethical or, you know, but like this is their job. This is what they train for every day. You know, the question is who is right about doing their job right to the letter of the law? You know, is it is it the letter of the law or is it the intended meaning of the law that's happening here, which is an interesting conversation.
2: Well, they get into this at the end of the end of the movie, right? When they do like uh, this debrief of like the whole thing, it's like they were both right. (laughs) There there is this like crazy split in like naval policy. They've set up a hierarchy for a reason, but they also try to install some safeguards regarding the authority to launch nuclear weapons. So
0: like, yeah, they're they're both right. And and in the end, they're both wrong. Well, at least the question of whether or not the message is you know the new EAM the second one that came through it's muddled about whether or not that might be a countervailing order or not but but Ramsey makes a very clear break in process when the XO is supposed to be the second person to authenticate the the message and if he's not agreeing to also give his approval to launch you're not allowed to as captain or commanding officer you can't replace the XO because otherwise like the president if the president makes an order to launch and and the people around him decide, you know, I'm not going to assist you or I'm not going to authenticate that you're the president, even though you've given the codes. The president could fire that individual and then pick someone else. They can't do that on the submarine. So the this, the chief of staff on the on the, on the submarine, the, uh, I forget what the actual term is for the person on the sub, but he, he makes a, a point like uh, the captain is breaking the rules here. So he allows the XO to essentially take over.
1: The chief of the boat, yeah, the chief of the boat.
0: The chief of the boat agrees with Hunter, like, no, this is this is very clearly a break in protocol, and orders the um, commander to be returned to his stateroom. Um, it's like
2: the chief of the boat was like the captain's closest ally, like yeah. the whole time, and then he's the one who makes the break. Is like, no, dude, you're, you're totally oh. like...
3: Captain, I cannot concur. Repeat my command. Sir, we don't know what this message means. Our target package could have changed. You repeat this order or I'll find somebody who will. No, you won't, sir. You're relieved to your position. Cobb, remove Mr. Hunter from the control room. Get Lieutenant Zimmer in here right now! No, sir. I do not concur, and I do not recognize your authority to relieve me under command under Navy regulations. Cobb, arrest this man and get him out of here! Under operating procedures governing the release of nuclear weapons, we cannot launch our missiles unless both you and I agree. Cobb, what are you waiting for? This is expressly why your command must be repeated. It requires my assent. I do not give it. And furthermore, you continue upon this course and insist upon this launch without confirming this message first. I will be back by the rules of precedence. Captain Commanding Officer command Alabama, regulations i order you to place xo under captain. arrest on the charge of mutiny Cop! captain please the xo is right we can't launch unless he concurs
1: and this is the thing that we really got to focus in on is that gene hackman says listen if you will not dedicate to this order i'll find somebody who will and that's that's a the break. point. That's the point where they're like, no, that's wrong. That's against naval regulations, you know, and and that's where he and and even the, the chief, who's the senior enlisted man on the boat, Denzel Washington says, thank you, chief. And he says, don't f- 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 tell me. Thank you. You know, I'm doing what's right here. It's not because I like you, you know,
0: yeah. and I, I think yeah, that's yeah.
1: a very, very good moment.
0: Yeah, it's great. Um, so the new plan is. We're going to get the radio working because for some reason they have one radio and it's not working. Of course, the movie, you know, needs to happen. So they let this radio scenario play out on an actual um, boomer. There are so many backup systems for just this situation. All of them in the movie are not working. So they say, all right, let's we have some time. It's about 40 minutes left before the dissidents have the ability to launch. And when everything gets fueled up, let's try to get the radio working to find out what happened with this other EAM that was released.
1: Yeah. And, and, and the other thing that I think is important to know here is that this sort of standoff between the captain and Denzel Washington, this is not, again, this isn't a fictional thing, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like this has happened before luckily not in the United States, but just as unluckily in the Soviet union. Right. I think it's, and we talked about this before, but uh, Vasily Arkhipov, Mm -hmm. right. Who Strangely enough, during the Cuban missile crisis, Uh, the Soviets launched five nuclear armed submarines and they had nuclear armed torpedoes. And on one of the submarines, he was the executive officer, but strangely enough, because of weird Soviet Navy stuff, he was also the Commodore in charge of all of the flotilla. Hmm. And so when the captain of that ship decided that he was going to launch this nuclear armed torpedo at the American carrier battle group, he said, no, I get a say too, because I am, the Commodore of this flotilla and there was a standoff just like this. And it became a huge deal. And basically th- this guy, you know, saved the world from world war three. And then, you know, uh- Essentially, was reprimanded for it after the fact, right? Because he didn't follow his orders. Like, mm-hmm. it was a very real situation that's happened before.
0: And if I remember right, he thought that they were that a war had already started because there were some death charges that were released. The Russians interpreted that as a direct death. war was already started. Now let's go ahead, and then that was the. But, but wait moment let's think through the consequences of what was happening here going back to that drill right with the fire and the drill like how there's like oh it's creating all these tensions
2: that's what happened on that soviet submarine the b-59 so that was designed to operate the north atlantic in cold waters it was sent down to cuba in the caribbean in warm waters so i think the average temperature on that sub was like 115 degrees in the cool spots of the sub hmm. in the engine it was up to 150 degrees fahrenheit right air so conditioning the guys,
1: broke and yeah. yeah they're they're
2: like they're so they were passing out from like heat exhaustion like they were they were at their like wit's end and so basically what happened like that that captain um just started having a mental breakdown like when the depth charges started going off around him he just like snapped so that that, again going back to that drill right like when you are under that much pressure and you have control over enough firepower to destroy the world that's a pretty bad combo
0: it's scary and it's even worse in the movie because uh you know as soon as he takes uh hunter takes command the akula class finds them again actually before it USS Alabama is able to destroy that attack sub. Uh, one more torpedo gets away and damages the USS Alabama, which is sinking. Uh, captain has to, the Captain Hunter now has to make a dis- determination that he's going to sacrifice some crew members to in the bilge uh, room in order to let the rest of the submarine survive. The, the crew, while some of them were willing to support this, this uh, it depends from the perspective you're looking at either. Uh, a mutiny or you know having someone resume their resign their post uh because if they're crazy either way the
1: perennial navy question right yeah is it a mutiny or is a man doing his duty and it's it's whoever the victor is whoever wins to decide who the the (laughs) mutineers are like
0: well, then, then, we, then we see some of the characters that we liked before, now they're getting mixed up in the counter-mutiny. Someone wants to uh, take back over, um, you know, let Ramsey get back into control because F's people have died in this uh, Bilge Bay accident. Um, they try to go after, they, they know there's certain people you need to have in order to do this launch. And one of them is Vigo, because Vigo is the guy who is friends with both Hunter and with with Ramsey. He is the weapons operator, the WEPS, the weapons engineer. So it's his job to, you know, actually be doing a lot of the launching. And he's part of the process. So they know they need to get him. At first, he re- resists this effort, but then he's convinced that, you know, nope, my my family's at stake here you see his kind of kids and stuff earlier in the movie. So he decides to give them access to a small arms cache, this this kind of counter mutiny group, and they take back the the command. Hunter realizes something's off. So he gives the keys to the, the submarine to one of his sailors that we meet earlier in the movie that he trusts. At this point in the film, the Russian dissidents are about 14 minutes away from being able to launch. So he still wants Hunter to try to get up Get the radio fixed. And that's the order he gives before Ramsey and his crew basically take back over.
1: And this is where the dogs can sense evil part happens uh, when Ramsey gives that order the smartest dog in the world the jack russell terrier starts barking and like no this is bad and he's like shut up you don't know what you're talking about like should
0: listen to the dog totally uh hunter you know he brings up a a point here that i think is worth exploring later that if the if we're if the submarine is wrong and that uh, they're not actually fueling the missiles and the russians get upset what the russians are going to do the russians being the not the dissidents but the you know the actual people who are legitimately in charge of the country at that time—they're going to respond by destroying the United States and kill a billion people if we were to launch there. I think we can talk about at the end of the movie whether or not that actually would be the scenario, but that is the—I think—the movie draws on our understanding of like war, potential accidents, starting you know back and forth, you know, like the Terminator situation with what Skynet did, you know, with the United States. It draws on that uh, area, anyways, and that's the argument that Hunter makes to everybody. On his counter, counter, counter crew to get back control over the ship. Wanting to note here, the movie tells us that the dissidents are 14 minutes away from being able to to launch their weapons. I think the movie ignores this, but a little dirty secret is, um, if we're actually at this point, the whatever we're doing on the submarine matters not, because it takes about 14 to 15 minutes for the U.S. Um, naval submarines to be ready to launch, and it takes about 15 minutes for them to reach their target even if they're right on the coast. So at this point, it's too late. If this is actually taking place, it's too late. Like the Russians, if the distance are actually going to launch as soon as they're fueled up, unless they for some reason they decide to wait. But I don't know why you would, because it's clear enough that this other, the other side's seeing that you're fueling the missiles. Uh, one small thing is that it's, it doesn't matter, uh, but the movie's exciting, so we can kind of ignore it. But there's no way, even if they were to launch right now, the U.S. Uh, naval submarine they wouldn't reach and destroy those missiles before those missiles from the distance would be in the air.
1: Denzel Washington's character even says that, I think. He, said, he says something about missiles passing each other yeah. in the air, which is, I think, sort of the chief foilable about this nuclear warfighting strategy. One side sees the other nukes coming. They go, oh, well, it's time to get rid of ours. And so they launch theirs back. So literally any nuclear weapons from that first strike, you know, if it's a counterforce strike, would be hitting empty silos, mm-hmm. right? And so it's like, what's the point then? Like, like why do this if it like literally won't have an effect? Like the you know, uh, given you know whether or not early warning systems work or not, like like they will see it coming and it's just going to hit empty silos. Like, and I think that that is sort of a fascinating conversation about this nuclear war fighting thing that is, that is so prevalent in, in spaces like this.
2: Really good segue, by the way, and th- this gets to kind of like the next point here, right? So after uh, Hunter leads this kind of like, uh, leads the counter mutiny, right? Peter Wepp, uh, played by Viggo Mortensen, right? He basically disobeys the order to fire the actual missiles, right? And he just, he, he, he doesn't respond when the order comes down from the captain. So refuses he refuses spark-
0: to open the safe that has the trigger.
2: Yes, yeah, so the captain, captain and his goons go down there hold the gun up to his head saying we're going to shoot you in the face like blah 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 and then obviously they can't shoot him in the face because he's the guy who knows the code (laughs) (laughs) so that's that's going to be self-defeating anyways but then Gene Hackman's like oh well this dude over here doesn't know the code so I'm going to shoot him and hold him hostage right and he has this great quote right and he's he says
3: millions of lives that stake here Peter don't make a dumb decision
2: and then Viggo Martinson's response is okay. Well, don't don't shoot this one poor sailor guy. I'm going to open the safe that is going to guarantee the death of tens of millions of people, right? If not billions, it's and this goes to that like mm-hmm. missiles passing each other. It's like there are no winners in nuclear war. As soon as one flies, they all fly. You're doomed, right? In, in the scheme of things, if you're if you are in a situation where you think that there has been an order that came in, right? Partially. It may or may not be like uh, get countermanding the, the previous order, but there's a chance. So you, you've got your are weighing your two options. There's a chance that we don't shoot these things
0: and everything's fine. Or we shoot these things and ev- guarantee everybody dies. Yeah, yeah, everybody dies. So except, for, except for this one, this one sailor that's next to him for a short amount of time until he dies of radiation poisoning later.
1: But this is also the the other thing that I find so fascinating about this scene in particular is this is where we finally have a good guy, bad guy, Mm. because because this is clearly where Gene Hackman steps over the line. He's holding a pistol to an innocent man's head, a petty officer that works for him, threatening another officer to kill another officer if he doesn't do what he says. And then you're finally like this guy's lost his marbles, right? Like, and and Vigo even says like, Captain, you know, like, yeah. like what are you doing? And, and, and it was funny because he, like, a uh, great scene, v- as soon as Vigo Mortensen screams Captain, he turns around and he lowers his pistol and you can see like all the blood's drained out of his face. Like, what am I doing? Yeah. Like, you know, like, and I, and I love that scene, but I think it gets back to sort of that first theme. Is this a valid order anymore? Or is this guy just decided that this is what he's going to do and like, this is his crusade now. This is about his leadership. You know, this has become personal. This is no longer mm. about the security of the United States. This is about one man's, you know, personal crusade here.
0: Like what the poster told us. Yeah. So have you all uh, come across this thing called the Fisher Protocols? It's a thought thought experiment. It was uh, written by a, a philosopher who wrote for the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, And the idea there is, is how do you make the decision to use nuclear weapons, something that is viscerally clear to the person who's making the decision. Like if you look at numbers on a spreadsheet and you talk about mega deaths and how many people are killed, it's very uh, you know, whitewashed. It's desynthetized. Like the idea of killing this many people by pushing a quote unquote button doesn't really get you there mentally about what you're about to do. So you might be more willing to do it. So the Fisher protocol is is okay, great, but the key to launch the weapon is inside of this random person's body and you have to cut out and kill them and get blood on your hands before you get the key so, this to me, in the movie, it's like a reverse version of that. It's like,, uh, you have to save this one person or but it, and if you do, then all these other people are gonna die. It's kind of like a weird, bizarro Fisher protocol thing. But we get into the Fisher protocol because it's wonderfully displayed in the HBO series The Leftovers, so we did a podcast on that that was pretty cool. but we're near the end of the movie here, so we can kind of wrap up a little bit. you know there's this arm standoff, try to figure out you know what's gonna happen uh the tr- Vigo gives him gives Ramsey the the trigger. He goes to pull the trigger, but somewhere else, a key, the captain's key is removed, kind of meant that the tubes can't fire. There's a standoff about, all right, you know what? We have a little bit of time left. Let's get to the EAM message. Let's get to that depth. And it turns out the EAM was to terminate the launch. The radio is working now. And it's very clear that uh, Hunter was quote unquote right the whole time with the idea that this was something that was telling them to stop because Vladimir's rebellion was put down. There's even a note in the in the EAM that the, the Akula class ones were ordered to return back to the Russian bases. Hunter resumes command of the ship, and Ramsey goes back uh, to the stateroom with his dog, with his you know brilliant, all-knowing animal. Back on land, as Will kind of previewed with us earlier, the both men are brought in front of a military tribunal, and the Admiral, who's played by Jason Robards uh, from the day after and um, all other nuke movies, they talk about, this is a hard one to decide, because both of you are technically both right and wrong in different places. It would have been nice if you could have worked out your differences more professionally, but Hunter is deemed to be, you know, the person who made the decision that was in the best interest of the United States. So he's given command of a submarine, actually at the recommendation of Ramsey, who was allowed to retire early. They shake hands at the end and I guess get mutual, you know, respect. And the, the movie ends with a text screen that says, As of January 1996, primary authority and ability to fire nuclear weapons will no longer rest with U.S. submarine commanders. Principal control will reside with the President of the United States. Um, which, you know, I don't understand that. Uh, I thought about that since I saw this movie again. I still don't understand that because the movie describes that procedure in that way. You know, the president issues an order, it's authenticated, and then they launch, and there's there's no way to, like, I don't understand why this is different. I tried to find some historical description of, of this, like, how did submarine launch authority change in the 90s? I don't see any description of this, so maybe I'm wrong about this. If, if listeners can answer this, probably Stephen Schwartz is going to message me and tell me uh, the right answer to this, but I, I couldn't figure out what this was, because the, the launch authority is done pretty, and, portray, and the procedure is portrayed pretty well here. president makes an, an authorization for launching, and the submarine candles follow a, a thing. Do you guys have any idea what this final text is that's supposed to make us feel
2: better? I think we just need to wait for Stephen Schwartz to, to weigh in on, on this cuz <laughs> I'm I'm 100% in agreement with you this this seems the way it works like it's not like the president can actually push a button and launch the weapons from the White House he has to send that command to the sub that gets authenticated
0: and then there are protocols in place for them to launch, but they cannot do it without the authority of the president. This might be some sort of comment about pre-delegation of authority to launch, but like... But there isn't in this movie. There is no pre-delegation. Yeah. I don't know. Jeff? I
1: I think that that this quote at the end this blurb of text is actually the scariest thing about the whole movie because mm. it's like in the 90s you're like supposed to be left with the warm and fuzzies like oh thank god the president's can get control of this now this can never happen and we've literally just in the past month been going through this thing where we found <laughs> out that it turns out that the military had to f- step in and make sure that the president couldn't launch nuclear weapons because he was having a psychotic break after January man, was... 6th like and it's like what a way to come full circle man you know like brings up this fascinating conversation about nuclear use
0: yeah let's dive in here let's get super critical real quick cuz i know will's got to uh, head out here how how well do you think that the this movie portrays some of these debates cuz the Na- US Navy didn't like it uh once they found about the, the plot and kind of what was involved they refused to help tony scott Uh, despite the fact that he probably got them most of their f-14 pilots uh, for for generations Um, i mean they almost got me my vision wasn't so bad the movie does try to delve into some of these things it delves into nuclear deterrence debates it delves into policy debates it's it's pretty interesting you know we all don't necessarily like nuclear weapons but if you have them you know should we be in favor of a command and control system that allows this kind of scenario to play out Uh, nine out
2: of ten this like the fact that the navy didn't like it means that it's worth its salt right Hmm. like Oh, I mean, really, like, I mean, the, you know, the, the US military uh, as an or- organization, it doesn't like independent thinking, right? Like, that is the antithesis of what they're about, like hierarchy, deference, like, you shall do what you're, you're ordered to do. This movie, like had an eerily accurate portrayal of how the actual like launch process works how life is on a submarine the tensions the pressures it threw in some of the philosophical debates um if anything that was the most unrealistic part like, like you wouldn't have any of this philosophical debate because these guys follow orders right and but you know it made for a great movie as jeff said I too had not seen this movie since I was like a pre-teenager, like a teenager in the 90s. And I'd totally forgotten how awesome this movie was. Like I remember really liking it, but I think, you know, now... As a nuclear weapons policy expert, like I was just like, oh my god, there is so much good stuff here. Like I was like practically drooling as I was watching it. And I was like, oh man, this is this is great.
0: there, yeah. there are some movies that I've watched um, again since entering this field that are are better. And for me now, you know, because I what I want in this podcast is to find some of these things. And it's it's, it's an interesting reaction. Like I watch a film. Uh, and i either can can put aside the issues and say this is still a good film if it portrays things inaccurately or if it does it right and tells a good story and 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 gets at you know a message to people that isn't completely destroyed by this final text on the screen uh, i think it's great it's great when you see movies like this i think the sum of all fears to me is a movie that after watching it again entering this field is you know, are there things in, incorrect about it? Yeah, but most of it's pretty good, and it, it tells a pretty fun story. This is one of those. Well, there are definitely some movies that I may have liked as a kid and then watch nowadays, and I go, gosh, this is really annoying. Like, to me, it's a lot of, like, the Mission Impossible movies or even most recently, like, Spies Like Us, a film that I really enjoyed as a comedy, you know, as a kid, and then watched it recently and was like, this is all completely bonkers. Reverse Reversing a missile... You know order to, to detonate um in hacking you know, it's all this not it's like this is silly but anyways what does it ruin the movie for me i don't know but jeff what do you ever run into these situations
1: the thing that that i really walked away with with this film is during that ultimate scene there right where it's gene hackman and denzel washington they're standing on the con and they're trying to figure out who's right and who's wrong they're waiting for the message to come through and he says you know what you'll get son you'll get a nuclear war. And he says, I think you mean a nuclear holocaust or, hmm. you know, like that that difference of opinion about what they did, They're talking about the same thing, but two very different visions of what that same thing is, you know? And, and I think that that this is fascinating that the, the U S government, you know, in the military and the Navy, whoever it is, they like to call it nuclear war because, it, like you said, it's sort of sanitizing. Like, this is the United States. We've been fighting wars forever, and it doesn't bother anybody here at home. How much have, has any American, you know, that isn't in the service or have a, a family member in the service suffered from the past 20 years of the war on terror? Hardly anybody, you know. Our taxes didn't even go up. So, like, thinking of it in terms of war, oh, it's controlled. Mm-hmm. Oh, it, you know, we'd be able to... You know, it's it's there's a science behind it. But but what Denzel Washington says, no, this is nuclear holocaust, because no matter who wins, everybody loses, you know, like what Will said earlier. I think it's a really interesting dynamic at play in this movie. Also, just, you know, a couple of things about about today where we're at, you know, there's been a serious problem in the Navy with the competency of naval officers, right? I think it's something like a third of naval officers were brought out of command because of the Fat Leonard scandals and Hmm. stuff. How many naval accidents have they been recently with just things like basic seamanship and watch standing, you know, Navy destroyers crashing into uh, merchant vessels and stuff. Like there's a real sort of crisis of leadership in the Navy right now that we don't get to hear about that much. But when you're talking about nuclear weapons and you're talking about, you know, these interesting Hyman Rickover-esque sort of commander legacy in that service, it's an interesting one. And finally, I think the, the, the third thing that is fascinating is the only reason that this that catastrophe doesn't happen in this movie is because of the very real protocol of the two-man rule in the Navy, a second man has to validate and authorize whether or not an order is, a, is a, a valid one. And I think that it sets up a really interesting argument as we're starting to have these conversations about the ethics of nuclear use. How do we, in, in like what Will's been talking about this whole time, in the heat of battle or in the heat of January 6th, like fall of the republic sort of situation, you know, how can we validate that an order made under stress is the right one? <laughs> and, and it gets into this question of should the United States continue to to maintain the ability to launch nuclear weapons first, you know, uh, or should these be a deterrent only weapon? And the only time that we will use them is if somebody attacks us with one, you know, and, and the only way to be sure that weird human mistakes don't get in the way is to make sure that the scenario isn't available in the first place. Right. And I think mm. that this movie does a really interesting job of, of demonstrating that I, I, Will's right. I give it a nine out of ten. It's it's a great film. I think the legacy of of you know that there's a hundred nuclear warheads on one of these submarines, and there's nine of them out there at all times. That is why there why there always has been a two man rule.
0: Well, it, I, the, I think the movie portrays the process pretty well for submarines. I think not only is there a two person authentication. You know, was this this is valid? And the valid is the is the question, right? Is the order authenticated? And is that what is that all it takes to be valid? Then then Ramsey was correct in the situation. But if it's valid as a sense of, well, there was this other partial EAM and all this stuff, then that becomes the what can make the previous order not valid anymore. But I think the movie is smart because... Well, they have this philosophical debate about whether or not using nuclear weapons is good or bad, and I don't think Hunter would ever, if the order was, if he felt the order was correct uh, in the sense of the that second EAM never came through, he would be completely fine with following through the process of authenticating and and giving his approval to do that launch. It's not like this is a movie of a hippie who is saying I don't want to launch nuclear weapons regardless of the order. I'm now having second thoughts, cold feet, any of those things. It's not that. It's it's a debate about that process piece, but. In our field, we realize that it's not simply a matter of m- when you make the decision to use nuclear weapons or to build them, but the process. If the process is is, is flawed or incorrect, it forces us to become like machines, like a doomsday machine on our own, following through a process that we know is going to result in a situation that's bad and not the most ideal one. Or it breaks down, and there's accidents and miscommunication, and and all of these things can happen, and you end up in the situation that you didn't plan on being in anyway. So the process matters, the people matter, the decision matters, and that's why some people have. Included, maybe just get rid of the nuclear weapons in the first place because none of our systems are, are really working all that well there, there are things if i wanted to we could nitpick more on like the idea of having to wait 30 60 minutes to fuel a missile hasn't been a problem for decades and decades in the 90s there were some li- there they're definitely liquid fueled uh, russian missiles but they don't take that long um, this movie was probably showing an ss-18 or an ss-19 those have liquid fuel but the way that they're set up in the 90s the ss-18 we to fuel it it takes about one minute. The SS-19 takes 25 minutes. It, these things, there are reasons why the fuel is stored separately because it's corrosive and damaging, but they've gotten to the point where they can fuel these missiles with fast fuel pumps or this kind of weird mix of keeping some of the fuel in it and out. They can do it so quickly. So it's not this, this 60 minute problem is a problem of the, of way earlier uh, in the cold war. I mean, The Russians, even with their new generation of ICBMs that they're building, RS-28, Sarmat, like, that's still going to be using liquid fuel. You can just make an assumption. These days if you had a missile that took 60 minutes to fire, that's a really bad situation to be in when it takes 30 minutes for the U.S. missiles to land on your target. So this is a situation, it's the same thing with, with what happened. I see Jeff has a poster of Dr. Strangelove behind him in his office. It's the same thing in that movie. You know, they kind of ignored the existence of missiles so that there would be time, and time allows a plot to happen, you know, in a movie. Uh, you can nitpick that, but I don't I don't think it's worth getting into. I also could nitpick whether or not I think the Russians would actually attack the United States with a full-fledged nuclear strike, even if it was an accident of thinking, well, you know what, the, the Alabama thought that they, that these missiles were being fueled, so they, they destroyed a single silo uh, in Russia. Now, I don't know how close these silos were to Russian civilian sites, if the Russians would interpret this as a full-scale attack, even if it was only a limited strike here. This is the stuff that people debate about. You know, will the Russians take a single strike? Will the United States assume if there was one Russian attack uh, yeah, of a tactical missile, would the United States then respond fully with a full scale strike if that one tactical, you know, there's these things happen, but I'm just not as convinced as the movie is. It's like an automatic thing, but maybe, maybe that's and the, the point,
1: point is is that we don't want to have to find we out. We don't want right? to find out, <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. But I, I think it's, I think this is so cool because this debate, I mean, it's not cool, but this debate is happening at so many different places here and there. So then you know, we couldn't nitpick these things, but I think overall this movie is pretty damn good.
1: My favorite nitpick is all of the unsecured firearms in the missile yeah. control center. Yep. They're yeah. just like we're,
2: we're going to take all the guns and just start running around. It's like so this is a great way to uh to quote The Hunt for Red October things down here don't take too kindly
1: to bullets. <laughs> right. there, this, like, at the very, I don't know if it was just because they were <laughs> filming it, all the scenes with Vigo Mortensen on the same day, which includes where they go through the weapons locker and stuff. But like in the very mm. first missile drill where they call down to him and everything's fine on board the ship, there's just a shotgun propped up against the wall. And I was like, that's not cool, man. That's a, Somebody's getting written up
0: for that. Like, Yeah, he's taking his uh, his weapons specialist position pretty seriously. He's like, I just always have a bandolier of bullets on. So we normally would do our parking lot movie discussion where we talk about some of the non-nuclear things in here, like the fact that Al Pacino and Brad Pitt were almost cast as the leads of this movie and kind of we can compare it to Hunt for Red October and all of these other ones. But I think Will, Will's we'll got to sign out here, so we may have to have this conversation
2: Oh, I'm, I totally want to take the Al Pacino and Brad Pitt thing. Would have been an absolute disaster if that happened. Ooh. I mean, Denzel Washington is one of the best dramatic actors in the world. And he, like, shone like a star in this. Like, That's great. Stone cold, steely. Like, he manages to, like, show emotion without showing too much emotion, like, seeming like a badass. Gene Hackman was just like on point being able to portray somebody as crazy as Jack D. Ripper from Doctor Strange Love. But in a very believable, like you, you walk the line seeming like an absolute lunatic, yet seeming perfectly sane and just going by the book It was really only that one instance where he Jeff was talking about right where that scene where he's like, I I don't care, I'm going to fire you and I'm going to get somebody else to take over and launch and authenticate this code. That was the breach of protocol. And then yeah, like holding a gun up to the head of like this, this innocent petty officer two breaches of protocol. And really like, you know, that just segues into another thing that was so amazing about this movie. Every single war movie you have ever seen, good guys, bad guys, really easy to tell them apart, right? Who was the good guy here? Who was the bad guy here? The good guys and the bad guys were the same guys, right? And Mm -hmm. going to like the very end of the movie, Denzel Washington and Gene Hackman, like they they, like salute each other, like, you know, kind of like walk off their, their own separate ways. They're buddies, they're pals so well done um so anyways and brad pitt had none of that
0: like (laughs) well there goes there goes my chance of having brad pitt on the podcast at some point fair enough
2: (gasps) wait on me it's okay
0: let's uh let's wrap up here uh let's do our rating system uh where we usually rate the movie um at a five with one being you know a terrible movie you'd never recommend anybody you know five being terrific Uh, But I like to tailor the rating system. If I'm going to get super critical about the plot, I might as well, you know, get super critical about the rating system itself. So I've crunched the numbers here. I've talked to, you know, I talked to uh, the dog in the movie and because he's such a brilliant mind and and figured out, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to rate Crimson Tide on the scale of one out of five nuclear launch triggers on your submarine, because if you've got just one. Vigo Morrison might hide it from you and you won't be able to do what you want to do. But if you've got five triggers hidden all around your boat, not even Aragorn will be able to keep you from going ballistic. So, I rate this movie a solid four. I think I enjoy this movie a lot more than I think I did uh, when I first saw it. It's it's great. It's a definite recommendation for people to see. I think some of the the plotting stuff about kind of the with the nitpicks and things keep it from being a 4.5 or a 5, but I would surely love it uh, if I, I might actually rewatch this movie again this week, but not with the mind of wanting to watch it for a podcast, just to enjoy it again. Because sometimes I don't get to do that when I'm getting ready for a podcast and I'm thinking about things to think to talk about i enjoy it and i would love to watch it again will what would you think about this one
2: straight up five because not the best movie in the world right it's it's not in like my top three favorite movies there's
0: Uh, a lot of of talk about horses both from a graphic standpoint and the history of of horse racing that i just like this i don't get what's going on here and this seems important so that's another thing that knocks off a quarter point for me that's what's his face that came in to punch up the script i'm sure yeah and it's silly yeah
2: Yeah. (laughs) But really, like, um, you know, they, so maybe not my top three. Definitely in my top ten favorite movies after re-watching it. And that's it, very, very good. I would highly recommend it to people. But really, like, the, giving it a five, I just can't justify giving it anything less. Because I can't, there are, like, things to get super critical about. But there were no, like, problems. It was, a, it was like, watertight
0: Pat? Like a submarine should be?
2: Yeah, as, as a submarine should be, yes. <laughs> but I feel like they missed out on the perfect opportunity to make a sequel to this movie. And it's a sequel of like what actually happened in those 60 minutes, right? Like oh. of when they started to fight. Like, so like a separate movie of like what was going on on the ground. You know, the crisis response that led to the unconditional surrender of this uh, Rachenko. I think that would be super cool.
0: And then trying to recall the submarine. Like, why is our EAM message not being received? And yes, I can see this. I like it. I like it a lot. Jeff, what do you, What about you? How many nuclear triggers would you give this one?
1: Listen, I'm I'm going to go 110% on the reactor here. And I'm going to say that uh, I give this five out of five nuclear triggers as well. I, I, like, I agree with everything Will said. It's not, a, it's not a perfect movie, but there's so much to love here. You know, the things that we talked about, these themes, ethical versus valid nuclear launch commands, confusion during a time of war, and the stress on nuclear launch orders, and and then, you know, what are we actually talking about when we're talking about nuclear war? I also think there's just a ton of other interesting stuff going on in this film. You know, uh, it's interesting looking at Crimson Tide from a 2021 perspective. There's probably a really interesting, like, race relations in the Navy thing mm. going on here. I think that having Denzel play the exo, so, and you know, the Navy is has traditionally been egalitarian, but, uh, you know, having this older white crazy captain and the younger african-american exo and the other african-american sailors on the ship you know th- there's a lot going on there that i haven't even had time to think about but you know this is before independence day which i think had will smith as the pioneering you know african-american marine hero kind of thing you mm-hmm. know and, it, and there's just a lot there's a lot of interesting stuff to break down and uh, and i really really appreciate this film and and sort of the discussions it got into
0: If people like the rating about how enthusiastic you all are for this, they might be interested in thinking and reading and watching other things similar to this film. Uh, So let's do our recommendations here before we wrap up. Uh, I've got just two quick things here. One is The Man Who Saved the World. It's a documentary from 2013 about the story that Jeff discussed earlier about the the Soviet submarine crews and the debates that they had that really was notably an inspiration for this film. Uh, Watch that. It's a great documentary. Uh, Occasionally pops up on Netflix as well. Second thing is uh, an article. It's a little wonky, but it's a great resource. Uh, It's by Jeffrey Lewis and Bruno Tetraeus. It's a CNS paper uh, from our our colleagues and friends at the Center for Nonproliferation Studies from 2019. It's called The Finger on the Button, The Authority to Use Nuclear Weapons in Nuclear Armed States. It's just a, a great and fairly recent resource on all of the different countries that have nuclear weapons and what we know about their launch authority. It's a lot more detailed on, on the missiles and bombers than it is on submarines because as much as we know about them in the movie, a lot of this stuff still is fairly secret and, and we know a lot more about the missile silos, I think because of people like the late Bruce Blair who was a former missileer uh, who really discussed quite a bit about the things uh, and the process that he knew about when he was you know commanding and working in missiles and missile, missile silos. I think we haven't had a similar thing yet with a good resource for this stuff here, uh, Jeff. What do you What do you recommend to people?
1: Sure, a couple of things. Uh, one is to read the phenomenal book "Blind Man's Bluff," uh, which is uh, about sort of the intelligence war between submarines during the cold war. Uh, It's primarily with attack submarines, again, nuclear powered, not nuclear armed, although they could have been nuclear armed at the time, I guess. Talking about using submarines to tap into Russian communications lines on the bottom of the ocean. It also describes a number of submarine related incidents between U S and Soviet submarines that like bumped into each other while doing crazy Ivans and stuff, you know, like, like a whole bunch of really hair thing things. We almost came to crazy submarine war. Um, another one, uh, there's many books in a documentary about this, but is Project Azorian um, is a fascinating thing. It's about one of the many Russian nuclear submarines that have gone down, and the CIA realized that it was in shallow enough water that they could go recover it. Hmm. So they built a mobile oil rig that actually was a cover for a giant, hook and crane that lifted a Russian nuclear submarine off the bottom of the ocean and in the process dropped two nuclear missiles to the bottom of the seafloor somewhere. Another great one. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then two that are on the top of my list that I haven't read yet, but look interesting. And I'm going to be checking out is 2034, uh, Admiral Stravitas's new book about a potential um, Pacific escalating crisis with the Chinese that eventually goes nuclear and then uh, A Time to Die, which is about the, uh, the Kursk incident uh, back in early 2000s with the sinking of the submarine Kursk. Um, so, yeah, definitely all things worth checking out.
0: I got to sworn when you said 2034 that that was the sequel to Metro 2033. Um, and that's what you were talking about here, alluding to some more tomb story here. But uh, this book sounds uh, very also interesting as well. Uh, Will, what do you have to recommend to people? Yeah,
2: so the, the one that really stood out to me is this website. Um, well, it's a project called the Armageddon Letters. Um, this came out uh, when I was in grad school Um, And it was timed with the 50th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis. So it is this like interactive website that is just a huge collection of resources that are put together in a really cool interactive way. um, Explaining what happened in the Cuban Missile Crisis. And it tells that story of the Soviet submarine B-59 and what went on there.
0: Jeff, will thanks so much for for coming back on the podcast here. Let's do some quick plugs. Jeff, uh, where can people find you other than your awesome you know work on uh, the Nukes of Hazard podcast and other work that you do? Where can people find some of the things that you're talking writing about these days?
1: Yeah, you know, definitely check us out the Nukes of Hazard podcast. Uh, we're on Twitter uh, at nukes underscore of underscore hazard. Also, uh, myself at Nuclear Wilson on Twitter. Check out the Center for Arms Control and non and Council for a Livable World where we get into the politics of nuclear weapons and talking with candidates and members of Congress and stuff. All some very interesting things for people to take a look at.
0: Great. Thanks, Jeff. Will, what about you? I know you're, you're out in Norway these days. Uh, where, where can people find you on, on social media if they can't make it all the way out there? Yeah, uh, I'm still very active on Twitter, at Will Satron. That's a good spot. Thanks to everybody for, for being on the podcast here.
2: Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Tim
0: thanks for listening to another episode of the supercritical podcast if you have any suggestions for future episodes or you want to tell us what we got wrong uh either nukes wise or maybe um you know we were joking about that dog knowing everything maybe you f- actually do know that dogs uh have a, a sixth sense and and i'm sorry i mocked you and your beliefs a couple ways you can contact the show on Twitter, I'm at Nuclear Podcast. We also have a website, supercriticalpodcast.com, where we put up all of our show notes, uh, or at least the links to resources that we use to build the show notes. And I do check a Gmail account, supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. And until next time, this has been Tim Westmeyer,
1: Will Sager. And Jeff Wilson.
0: And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we're bound to get supercritical about it. Have a good one. And as well, I'll put a, a single ping
1: just for you at the end.
0: Hell yeah. I like it. One thing only.